You are listening to Redefining Disability, an adaptive sports podcast brought to you by Move United. I am your host, Sean Butcher, and I have the privilege of serving as the editor of Move United Magazine, the nation's leading adaptive sports publication. Each week, tune in to hear how sports have made it possible for our nation's adaptive athletes, training tips from the best coaches and program leaders, and news on the latest technology, equipment, and trends in the industry. Chuck Aoki is regarded as one of the best wheelchair rugby players in the world and has played on the U.S. team in three Paralympic Games, even being named one of the two flag bearers for Team USA at the Paralympics last year. Chuck was born with a rare genetic disorder and was advised by his doctor to regularly use a wheelchair from the age of 12. Just a few years later is when he discovered the sport of wheelchair rugby and started out playing at Courage Kenny, a Move United member organization in Minnesota. But Chuck doesn't only excel in sport. He has completed a master's degree in public policy and is currently working on his PhD in international relations. So let's chat with him. Chuck, great to, great to have you on our, on our podcast. That's Sean, it's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. So, you know, one of the things that, that I learned about you was that you actually started out playing wheelchair basketball. And, I did. And, and so... Uh, First of all, let's start there. What was that like? And then, I, of course, my follow-up question is, what made you switch? So let's start with, <laughs> with you know, playing the sport first. Yeah, so I grew up, I'm, I'm from Minnesota, from Minneapolis. And so I grew up there, you know, a little kid obsessed with sports. Uh, but I had a disability, of course, growing up. You know, I had to use a wheelchair on and off when I was six years old and full-time when I was 10. And so I initially, you know, did a few able-bodied sports, but they just didn't really, you know, I couldn't really keep up, couldn't compete. I'd injure myself. And so what happened was, is my parents said, all right, you know, you're not going to, you know, you're not going to sit around, you know, you're not just going to do nothing. You need to, you need to still be active <laughs> in some way. So they went out and found adapted sports for me. They wouldn't found it. And so I initially, um, I tried a lot of different sports, but basketball is really the one that I fell in love with. You know, as a little, as a kid, you know, I, and the first time I was in a sports wheelchair, it was just like, oh my gosh, I can spin, I can go fast, I can crash into people, <laughs> which perhaps foretold my, my future career in athletics. Um, but yeah, I, I started playing that when I was seven years old and played all the way up until I graduated high school. And it's still my, my first love. Certainly I love getting out and, you know, running recreationally with, with guys in the area I live in and stuff like that. But it's, um, yeah, basketball. Basketball is how I got my my journey into adaptive sport began. And and being in Minnesota, what team did you play with? So I played for at the time called the Courage Center uh, team, and they're not Courage Kenny is the name of it now, but mm -hmm. uh, really wonderful organization. I started as a rolling rowdy. I made my way up to uh, what is now the Gophers, but at the time was the Lightning, and then to the varsity team, the the Rolling Timberwolves, Junior Rolling Timberwolves, I should say, which. Like I said, a lot of lots of fond memories from you know road trips across the Midwest with my family and teammates, and you know national championships and all all sorts of fun stuff. And um, there was this uh, around the time that you were growing up, and uh, there was this iconic um, documentary called Murderball. Mm -hmm. uh, I know that that somewhat served as an inspiration for you to to check out that sport. Um, what was it about the Murderball that 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 excited you? Yeah, I think so. I think really what what made Murderball so impactful for me and what really why it hit me so so strongly, I think, is the first time I saw it, I was actually sitting in a hospital bed with my mom, um, or she was next to me, I should say. And I, you know, I, I had a lot of injuries growing up, even while I was playing basketball. And I was feeling really down. 
you know, I was really bummed out. I kept having these injuries to my hands. It felt like I was in the hospital all the time. And suddenly I saw this, I was getting really frustrated also to say the, the loss of function I was having as a result. And suddenly, you know, this movie comes on, I think we rented or something. I can't remember where I see these guys who have, you know, hand injuries like I do challenges with their hands, you know, all this and their legs as well. All the disabilities that while not quite the same as mine were the most similar I had ever seen, you know? And so I saw people who were really going through the similar things I was. And so I think on that level, it resonated very deeply, um, you know, kind of like in, internally and said, wow, that's something really cool. You know, externally as a 15 year old boy, who is seeing a sport where you can crash into each other and smash people around. And, you know, in that movie, they're trash talking and they're out partying and stuff like that. It was like, Ooh, that looks like a lot of fun. You know, that kind of extrinsic motivation. Of course, my mom initially was like, I don't think you're going to play that sport. Um, But after a lot of back and forth, you know, I said, okay, fine. And I finally got to go to a practice also at Courage, uh, Courage Kenny in, in, in Minneapolis, went and checked it out. And, you know, I showed up, I was, five foot two, probably 120 pounds at most. And, you know, we had former D2 football players, guys who played for 30 years on the team would look at me and say, you, you want to play this sport? And I was like, yeah, I want to play. And they said, okay, sure. And so I hopped in a chair and, you know, I like to think I went in circles real fast, but they put me to the walls, knocked me over, sent me flying. And, you know, on the way home, my dad was like, what did you think of that? And I said, oh, I loved that. I was awesome. And, you know, I've, I've been a rugby player ever since that day. Uh, it was just, um, it was such a special sport. It connected with me. You know, the physicality is a lot of fun. The aggression is fun. It's, you know, it's fun to knock into people and crash into people. You know, there's no other para sport like it, you know? And I think going back to what I was saying though, what resonated so deeply for me as a sport with it was, you know, I grew up, like I said, with a lot of health challenges, always feeling like I had to be on my guard, always had to be really careful. And suddenly I had this sport where I could just unleash, you know, I could just do whatever I could play as hard as I wanted, as fast as I wanted. Mm -hmm. And, you know, obviously you need to be careful. There are rules still, but it was a chance to really just get to express myself so freely physically. I think that's why I fell in love with the sport as a sport. You know, it just was such an incredible chance to get to, like I said, crash into people, not can just feel alive in a way I'd never really felt. And then the second side of it is, is the social aspect. Like I said before, you know, I finally met people who had disabilities very similar to mine and had challenges like I did. And that has just given me so much in my life outside of the sport. The sport, I've obviously got been very lucky to represent Team USA quite a few times. And so I've had that prestige. But, you know, at its core, the camaraderie and the friendships that I've made from the sport are really what's so meaningful and, you know, helped with just little everyday life things. Like, hey, how do you guys do this? Oh, I do it this way. Oh, how do you do it this way? And I never would have gotten that without wheelchair rugby, you know, because it is such a unique sport with everyone in it having a disability and at least three limbs, mostly four limbs. And so it's really been, really been so special to me, you know, like I said, both athletically, but also just in my, my personal. Life. And, and I know probably as a teenager, as a 14, 15 year old boy, um, you may not have had the insights uh, that you do now. <laughs> so, so how does um, a, a, a medium, a, a, a film, a, a uh, representation that that's available. How important is that? And, and maybe looking back for you, how important was just being able to have that, um, you know, opportunity to see, uh, that documentary and that film and, and why is it important to continue to make sure that we elevate and raise the, the, the level and the bar for, you know, more representation across, you know, different platforms and mediums. Yeah, it, it's hugely important. 
you know, it's massive, I would say. In fact, um, I, I wouldn't have found Wheelchair Rug if it wasn't for Murder Ball. You know, I never would have heard of it. And while I'm just one person who did it and has been successful, there's, you know, there's countless other people who, who saw it and suddenly had their eyes open and said, oh, this is something I could do. You know, it introduced, you know, everyone, people with spinal cord injuries who are feeling like, oh, there's nothing I can do. Oh, no, there's this exists. You know, there's this sport out here I can participate in. And even if you find out wheelchair rugby isn't the sport for you, you know, there's there's dozens of other sports you can try. There's always some other ways to get active. And so, you know, looking back for myself, you know, it, it was it was really I, I can see how I didn't know at the time. But like I said, looking back, I can see how it really meant a lot to me to see other guys in wheelchairs on my TV. Just, to, you know, as simple as that, like, mm-hmm. and not just, you know, in a stock wheelchair, like no real custom wheelchairs that were built for them, that were you know built for combat to a certain extent. <laughs> and getting to see that really meant a lot to me. You know, it really uh, impacted me in, in a way that, you know, again, as I reflect on it, I, I don't know that I, I don't know how much that transformed me, but I think it really gave me hope. It gave me the idea, the possibilities of, whoa. You know, those guys are limitless. These guys are in an Oscar-nominated movie. You know, if they can be in that, who knows what I could do? I could do, you know, anything practically if these guys who who are also using wheelchairs and playing a sport can, can get to that level. And so I think that, you know, continuing to see more and more disability representation in media is, is critical for that reason. You know, I think that a lot of activists and folks talk about how representation isn't quite enough, and I agree. But I, I do think that, for people with physical disabilities, because for so long in, in society, it's something people hit or try not to talk, try not to show. It's mm-hmm. so critical that we still continue to show it really openly. You know, I think seeing it yourself represented is so meaningful, you know, and it, it, it really is something that is hard to quantify and to truly put into words how much, it, how impactful it is to get to see someone who looks just like you, you know, on a TV show, in a movie, whatever it is. But, you know, again, as a as I look back on my life, I, I see how much it impacted my life. And my hope is that it will continue to impact, you know, a generation of, of youth uh, with disabilities. Athletes are not behind me. You know, I think it just it's it's something that you can often grow up feeling very isolated with a disability. You can feel as though you're the only person like you. There's no one else like, you know, I, I was the only kid. I was one of two people who used a wheelchair all the way from kindergarten up until 12th grade. There was one other student who used a wheelchair the entire time I went through that process. And, um, you know, so there were times where it felt very isolating, but sport, I was lucky to have sport that I was introduced to at an early age. And so I was able to get that you know, uh, right away. But there are people I've met, uh, a teammate of mine who, later in my career in Minnesota, who I played was 50 years old, had never heard of a Paralympic sport or any parasport. He, he came to it at 50 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, he, had a, he had a quite a learning curve when he first showed up, he could barely move barely move a wheelchair but by the end he was you know he was actually able to contribute he played for us in a national championship game and so you know the more ways we can get to people earlier in their life i think are important and i think media representation is a massive part of that you know you say hey did you see this oh no i haven't seen it heard about it you know social media the ability to have conversations and talk about and to educate big platforms is so important it's something that um, you know, again, it's hard to measure the impact, but, you know, even if it costs very little to do these things and even if it impacts just one life, it, um, it makes a huge difference. And, and so you go to your first practice at Courage Kinney and you keep going back, obviously. I always like to ask athletes, when did you feel like uh, that you reached your tipping point, that this is something, you know, that I want to take from 
just for fun, recreational, having a good time on a week to week basis to, you know, I, I can, I can excel at this. I can be an elite athlete at this. What was that tipping point for you? Yeah, I think for me, there were, there were two, I'm going to, I'm going to say, um, and I think the first one was actually before I started playing rugby. I, I put, when I played wheelchair basketball, uh, the first time I went to a basketball camp, like, you know, with athletes all over the country, counselors and all that was at the University of Wisconsin Whitewater, mm-hmm. um, you know, major wheelchair basketball powerhouse. And I went there and that was the first time I ever saw Paralympic athletes. My, uh, my counselor was Paul Schulte, actually, I'll never forget it. You know, legendary, legendary Paralympic athlete. And I remember the first time, you know, I saw him playing against other Paralympians. I was like, oh my gosh, these guys are fast. They're incredible. Like, I can't believe what they're doing. And that was the first time I saw, you know, like you said, elite athletes in, in, in wheelchairs. And I said, whoa, these people are incredible. And I want to be like them. You know, I want to do my best to be like them. And so, um, you know, my, I was probably 13 or 14 at the time. And so I was like, okay, I really want to try to be really great at basketball. And, you know, I, I did it and I did my best. But, you know, I think I always had a ceiling in basketball. You know, I was hoping to play in college and I probably could have gone and played somewhere if I really wanted to. But then I found the sport of wheelchair rugby where I got to smash into people, knock people around. It conveniently eliminated the one thing I was the worst at in basketball, which was actually shooting, which is believe it or not, <laughs> you know, an important part of basketball. So eliminating that was helpful for me. And I think then for me, the, the tipping point into when I said, hey, this is something I, I could actually be pretty good at or do really well at is um, my, uh, me and one of my teammates who were also new helped us qualify for the national championships for the team. The first time they had qualified division two level, they'd never, they hadn't qualified in quite a long time. And we actually made it to the, the championship game of that. No one had ever heard of us. And so I think it was that, that moment where I said, okay, I'm, I, I, not to toot my own horn, but I think I'm pretty good at this sport. <laughs> um, and so it was, it was that when I said, all right, this is something I'd really like to try to get into, you know, and I looked into it some more and I you know, got a scholarship to play the University of Arizona, but a collegiate team. And that was, that was when it kind of went into full overdrive. It was like, okay, now I'm going to play with, you know, several guys on the national team. People were training full-time for this who really want to be Paralympic athletes. And so that, that moved to Arizona is when it really flipped for me and said, okay, I want to try to become one of the best in the world if I can. And, you know, luckily I've, been selected, and as you said, to several Paralympic teams. So I think I've I've managed to accomplish that goal. But yeah, you know, I think I I, I like to say I have those two moments where I really discovered that elite athletes existed in the Paralympic world, and then the second part is when, like I said, I discovered rugby, and you know, we had some ex- success right away. And I said to myself, Hey, I, I think I could I think I could do good at this. And so you talked about the why, you know, why why you like the sport and why you love the sport. Uh, let's talk about the sport specifically in terms of maybe maybe listeners that that aren't familiar with the the nuts and bolts. And obviously that could be a, a half day conversation or a, or by itself. But yeah. um, let me, let's start by maybe uh, for those that just don't know uh, or, or maybe can't can't or haven't been able to figure out or understand the point system. So uh, maybe start there and talk about the point system uh, and and then of course the number of players on each team at the, at the court on any given at any given time. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's, it's certainly a little confusing and we do our best to, to clarify, but it, it, it can be a challenge for people entering Paralympic sport world for sure. And then you know, the team sports, we, we, make it, we make it even more difficult. So uh, the way I, li- I like to lay it out is um, we play four on four on a basketball court. So there's four players on the court at any given time. Team size is usually 12 players um, in total. And so your four players on the court are all assigned a point value that ranges as low as 0.5 points 
all the way up to 3.5 points with half point increments. So 0.5, 1.0, 1.5, et cetera. Those four players' point values, the four players you have on the court, cannot exceed eight points total. And so with that, you know, the, the points are based on your functional level. So a 0.5 player has the least function. They're the most severe injuries. They usually have the least physical ability, so to speak, versus the 3.5s have your most physical ability. They can, you know, they have the most chair control, trunk control, kinds of stuff like that. You know, usually more, those are more amputee type players, whereas the, the 0.5s and 1.0s are spinal cord injuries, you know, C5, pretty high spinal cord injuries. And so, like I said, those, so the four players you have have to be eight points or less. And so what that does functionally is it means you can't simply put, you know, three, your three, of the high, three or four high functioning players out there. You have to balance. If you want to play a 3.0 player like myself, I have to be balanced with some sort of low point player. And that could be a one point player. It could be a 0.5 player. Um, it just depends. And so a big part of our sport and the strategy that goes into it, especially when coaches are selecting teams, it's having a balance. You know, you can't just take all high functioning players, as I said, you quite literally wouldn't be able to play the game. And you have, so most teams try to take a balance of, you know, what we call high point players, which are 2.5, 3.5 players, midpoint players, which are 1.5 and 2.0 players, and then 0.5 and 1.0 players. And so it's a mix of that. So for example, you know, a very common lineup that we have ran in the past is myself, a 3.5 player, a 2.5 player. So just as one, you know, one functional level below me, a 2.0 player. So one, one level below him, and then a 0.5 player who's you know significantly below the other three of us. And that's one way we try to strategize. Another very popular thing to do internationally is that some teams run what they call a high low lineup. And so that means they play two 3.0 players. So that's two very high functioning players and two 1.0 players. That's two very low-functioning players. And the, the, again, it's really interesting. It gets in the strategy. As you said, I could talk for, for days and days about this, but mm-hmm. it's effectively, you know, what I tell folks who are, you know, maybe new to Paralympic sport or even new to Paralympic team sport, it's really a way to, to balance the playing field and make sure that all classifications have the ability to, to make the team. And so, you know, a 1.0 player isn't competing against me. He or she is competing against other 1.0 players. And, you know, vice versa, 3.0s are competing against 3.0s. And the final thing I always like to mention with classification in particular is that, you know, it also, and this can sometimes be challenging to see to the untrained eye, but the 0.5 players, the 1.0 players we have, they're the best at their classification, the best at their physical ability. You know, I might have the ball more and maybe I look faster than those players, but those guys are some of the best athletes in the world mm-hmm. at what they do. And I think that's always really important to keep in mind, especially when we get para sports is, you know, I've had friends and I said, well, why is that guy slower? And I explained, well, this person is slower because they have you know, all these impairments, but what they're able to do is phenomenal given that. And I think that that's really interesting to keep in mind is that it may look as though, oh, we've got some slow guys out there. It's a like, well, they might, they might look slow, but they're, you know, at, at, when it comes to what they do, they're the best at what they do. They're the fastest at what they do. And it's really incredible what they're able to do, uh, despite the, like I said, sometimes the really severe disabilities they have. Yeah, I've had a chance to uh, chat with Coach Gumby about about uh, the strategy. So yeah, it's always a always an interesting thing. And, yeah, yeah. and so, uh, besides the point uh, component to the players, um, you know, obviously you said it's four on four. Uh, is it you know walk us through a typical game in terms of you know is it quarter based, half half time mm-hmm. based, and and um, I know the scores can can 
sometimes get up pretty high, you know, 55, 60 points, you know, a game and each team can easily score that if they're both, you know, at the, at, at, at comparable levels. So walk walk us through a little bit of that. Yeah, absolutely. So the, the game is played by four, eight minute quarters. um, And we have a break between each quarter and a slightly longer halftime break. And so, the game essentially begins with a tip-off. So, you know, two players get in the circle and throw the ball. You try to reach, and there's a little bit of strategy there, not a lot. <laughs> Dude, it's the taller guy wins. So <laughs> we don't – There, some countries, Japan has a guy who sits like a foot taller than any of our players, and so we don't even bother with it. We just say, you got it. You, you take it. We're not worried about it. Um, but uh, but then there are – then we have – the game is sort of a mix of a lot of different sports, I like to say. It's a bit of basketball. It's a bit of uh, soccer. It's a bit of hockey sometimes. And so we have uh, we have a 40 seconds, we call it a score clock. And so it's very similar to a basketball shot clock. And so essentially, mm-hmm. you know, once the t- a team takes possession of the ball and inbounds the ball, they have 40 seconds from that point to score. Kind of plain and simple, and it keeps the game moving. The pre- they used to not have a score clock, and sc- scores would end in the, the teens and 20s sometimes mm-hmm. because there was just there was no incentive to – to try to score fast. You know, there was no incentive to do so. You could just hold the ball for, for minutes at a time. And it wasn't the best spectator sport. At that I was going to say so, a lot, a lot less boring. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. It wasn't quite a lot more boring, a lot more boring. Yeah. A lot more. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it wasn't quite as interesting. So functionally then the game, the way the game works is there's inbound to begin every play. So one team has an inbounder and they throw the ball into one of, one of their teammates. They have 10 seconds to do so. Um, and once you've caught the ball and taken possession, you have 12 seconds to advance the ball from you know the back half of the bat- basketball court and the front half of the basketball court. Very similar to basketball. I think it's a 10-second uh, rule to get the ball over half court. Um, and so with that, uh, with that, there's also a 10-second uh, no pass, no dribble rule. So basically every 10 seconds, you have to pass or dribble the ball. And so we're able to keep the ball in our laps and push a lot more as opposed to basketball where they have to dribble quite a bit. You'll see in our sport a lot of pushing and then maybe a dribble or a pass quick and then back into the lap. And so our sport really emphasizes a lot of pushing, really trying to, to push the ball, push the ball, push the ball. Um, and then with that, we have uh, we have an over and back rule, very similar. So once you've advanced the ball into the front court, you can't throw it back. You know, you're kind of committed to that side of the court, which also keeps the game moving a bit, I think, speed wise and sort of cutting off the back half of the court. Um what else do we have? We have uh, we have a, 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 bas- a key similar to basketball that's allowed three def- only three defensive defensive players can be in at a time, and offensive players are only allowed ten seconds in at a time. So there's some strategy sometimes around what we call key defense, where you know there's a, most of our game is pressing, where you know the four players are you know actively attacking, but sometimes they'll you know fall back in the key as we call it and try a little more passive defensive strategy. And it really depends on the team. You're playing against the team, your strengths, you know, really tall team will sometimes go sit there and say, hey, we're really tall, you know, and it's just confined space. Try to get around this, you know, and so it can lead to some interesting strategy. And then the final thing we have is, of course, it's a physical game, full contact. Uh, we do have a few rules about that, though, for, for player safety. Um, you can't physically just hit someone, you know, that's not really allowed. You can't just punch someone in the face or anything like that. You're allowed to swipe for the ball and try to take it away. Uh, but, you know, contact, you know, to the person is usually not allowed. Incidental contact doesn't get called very often, but that's okay. Um, and then in terms of chair contact, it's mostly allowed, except you're not allowed to hit a player directly from behind in a way that sends them flying up. And then the other thing is that if a player is pushing down court, you can't hit them behind the axle of their wheel. If that mm. So if you imagine a wheel 
has an axle right in the middle, you can't hit them behind it because essentially if you were to do so, you can send a person a tailspin and it happens so fast you have no time to catch yourself and it's actually quite dangerous. Mm-hmm. Um, but other than that, it's 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 no holds barred. It's, it's hit, you know, if you hit someone straight on and they fall over with the ball, it's a turnover and it's your ball, you know. So it's very much physical contact is encouraged as much as we can, again, with being safe. And so it's really uh it's really an excellent sport. It's got a lot of nuance to it. That's why like a note, you know, I think people initially see it and say, Oh, it's smashing, it's crashing, that's awesome. And then as they learn more about it, they say, Oh wow, there's actually a lot of strategy that goes on to us. And I say, Yeah, it's it's, it's high speed bumper car chess, basically. <laughs> and so the two follow-up questions that I had um based on that was um, you meant you, there is a penalty box. So you mentioned that there are some rules. And so that's where maybe the hockey uh, yeah. concept comes into play there a little bit, but more importantly, I wanted to talk about, you know, maybe going back to your, I think it was, you said your, it was your mom's concern about, about safety, uh, you know, and, and, and spectators will see the hard hits and hear the hard hits. I mean, hitting, hearing the sound of wheelchair rugby is just as exciting as seeing it sometimes. <laughs> Um, but it is a relatively safe sport. Uh, and so can you talk about, you know, if folks are concerned uh, uh, because of what they see or hear about safety, um, you know, you can assure them that, you know, it's, it's relatively safe. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I think first, first, your first question, yes, we have a penalty box. If you take a penalty, you serve a minute penalty and then that's it. It's pretty, pretty low stakes uh, in a lot of ways. Other than the other team pretty much scores 99% of the time when that happens. Uh, but to your question, yeah, for it's interesting for a for a physical full contact sport, it actually is quite safe. Uh, the, the injuries we see tend to just be repetitive use injuries, which you know unfortunately can happen in any wheelchair sport, really, because you know the shoulders weren't built to do this, and so that's uh, why you know it's really important to take care of them. But that's mm-hmm. that's another thing we could talk about <laughs> for a while. Um, but yeah, it's actually quite safe because mostly thanks to the the chair manufacturers that have really done a wonderful job of evolving these chairs that can take a beating but also keep you as the person pretty safe because, you know, I, I, to, to lack of it and put it, when you're in a wheelchair, a wheelchair, you're in the chair and that you're inside it. You've got a big bumper around it. You've got wheels that are, that are, uh, we call them cambered or angled out, which kind of anytime you're on the court, you're actually somewhat far away from people. And so, yeah, you actually, the chair takes most of the brunt. I like to tell people, they all, folks will look at me and say, wow, you're crazy. Playing. So, well, the chair gets beat up most of the time. And when you see a wheelchair rugby chair, you see it's very true. It does get beat up quite a bit. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there's been quite a, quite a few evolutions, you know, both in rules to keep players safe. But like I said, also chair design. You know, another reason we have the chair wheels cambered, if you've seen most sports chairs, is A, it allows for the chair to be more balanced. So it is harder to tip over. But also it keeps your hands farther away from other people's hands. And so you won't get caught up as easily in another, person, another player's wheels, which keeps you safe. Um, but yeah, my, my mom was certainly very nervous the first time she saw me play. She was um, she was a little concerned. She was screaming profanities that I'd never heard my mother say um, as, because I kept getting knocked around by a, a very large individual. Um, but it uh, yeah, again, you know, I've, I've knock on wood. I've never suffered a major major injury playing the sport. And most, like I said, most folks actually end up not it really ends up being overuse injuries, which really come from training and not doing proper uh, maintenance and rehab or prehab on your, on your body carefully. And so I would encourage anyone who is, you know, who is nervous about it or not sure to come give it a try. You know, the, again, it's a lot of fun. There's, there's no sport quite like it. And you know, it's, it isn't for everybody certainly, but I think it's an experience where we're trying out and something that again is, is really relatively safe and that um, is, is so rewarding and so fulfilling also. 
I know Chuck, you've been to three Paralympics now and, and, um, even though uh, U.S. has won gold at like Pair Pan Am and others, we've not won gold at the Paralympic level during that time frame. Uh, you know what? What is what is the team's thought on that, or what is your perspective on, on that? I know it's been some tough and close gold medal matches. You know, I remember at least Australia yeah. in '16, and then and then obviously uh, our our uh, uh, matches in, in in Tokyo this you know last fall. But um, what are your what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's um, it's certainly something that that bugs bugs me to put it simply. Um, that we that we haven't been able to to get back on top. The last time we won a, you know, a, a gold medal at, at a major event was in 2010. You know, it's been a long time, and so I think it, it, there's a couple things that go with it. The first is is in one way is it's actually exciting because it means that the world is getting better. It means that the mm-hmm. sport is growing globally. Which is only you know good for good for the sport as a whole. It makes, means it's healthy. It means it's robust. You know, it means that you know not the fact that not every team is winning is is a good thing in, in the long term picture of the sport. And it means you know and it means people with disabilities across the world are getting opportunities. And I think that's a good thing. You know, and I can't be mad about that certainly. Um, but on a personal and again as a team level, it is frustrating. You know, we set our standards really high. Our, our standard is to be the best in the world, and we have not been able to accomplish that. Uh, in quite a long time, as you said, and, you know, a combination of, you know, not playing our best game at the right time, breaks not going the right way. You know, you referenced the game in 16, you know, a game where you lose in double overtime by one point is a game where any one play, one direction, it could have gone mm-hmm. the other way. And it's hard, mm-hmm. it's hard to let, it, it's hard as it was. I haven't, I've managed to not let that one linger too much because, you know, it was so close. Like I said, it could have, one pass could have gone one way and we would have been gold medalists. One pass goes the other way and we lose by two points. It's not even close, you know, so it's, it's not as close. So it certainly is challenging. It certainly is frustrating, but it's something that keeps me motivated and it keeps me really focused on, you know, not giving up and really continuing to try to earn, earn that gold medal someday. But I think what it has also helped me do is focus on, you know, what, what we're going to remember the most. And, you know, I have my medals actually next to me on this desk right here, but what really is, is been so wonderful about this incredible journey I've gotten to go on is the people I've met, the memories we've made, the friendships I have, the experiences, the places I never dreamed I would get to mm-hmm. go has really been the, um, has really been, you know, the, the reward at the end of the day. And those, these are friendships and things that last far beyond any medal. You know, if I had to pick between, you know, a gold medal, but not having, you know, made these relationships, I would, you know, I'd pick the relationship every time, you know, it really, that those things will last far beyond any one medal, any one match. Uh, that doesn't mean I'm going to stop trying for a gold medal. It's really, you know, it doesn't mean I'm going to give up and it certainly doesn't mean I've lowered my standards, but I think what I've, you know, and this, and this took some time to get here. I think early in my career, I wouldn't have said this, these same things, but it's, um, you know, focusing really on the process of getting better, improving, working hard, doing the best things within our control. And then at a certain point, you know, accepting that outcomes are are what they are and we're going to do everything we can to influence them, but sometimes we can't do everything possible. And so, you know, it's uh, I, to put a, to put a bow on it, 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 it's something that, you know, eats at me, continues to motivate me, continues to push me, but I know that my legacy, hopefully at least in this in sport and Paralympic sport as a whole, won't be defined simply by outcomes. It'll be defined on the people I worked with and the places I got to go and the you know the the influence I was hopefully able to leave behind um, across the board. And and pivoting away from sport a bit, um, I know that uh, you have a master's in public policy, 
And I should call you Dr. Aoki because no, you yet. have a not PhD. Yet. Not yet? Oh, you're working on not it? Not yet. Still working okay. on it. Okay. Yeah. All right. <laughs> and you're still working on a PhD in international relations, right? Yes. Yeah. So, uh, so you're excelling on on the court as well as uh, in the, in the classroom. What? Um, why public policy and why international relations? Uh, yeah. So, uh, it's it's kind of a funny story. The, the public policy one was I actually never thought I would go down this path at all. Um, but it was after 2016 had ended, and I was sort of in this this I wouldn't call it quite a rut. Or I should, I'm sorry. It was before 2016. I knew it was happening, and I was I didn't know what I was going to do after. And a lot of athletes, Olympic and Paralympic, go through these real downswings after games that where they just have nothing to do. They've spent the last four, six, eight years focused on something, and just like that, it ends. And mm-hmm. it's it, this is a real feeling. I've experienced it. And that emptiness is really hard. It's really difficult to deal with. I've seen teammates deal with it. I've seen friends deal with it. And it's not pleasant. You know, it, it, it's, it's a real funk that can take a long time to get out of. And so... I decided before Rio, I need, I need to have something I go into, even if it is just, even if I end up not really, you know, getting too deep into it, not really embracing it. I, I need to at least have something to kind of refocus right away on. And then I can always, I can always do things later. And so, you know, I went through all sorts of things. Do I want to try to get a job? Do I do this? Do I do that? And I settled on, you know, going for my master's, you know, both my parents have masters. My dad actually is a professor. And so higher education was something that was you know familiar to me in a, a comfortable environment. And after kind of looking into it more, I really, you know, public service is something that's always been really important to me. And I think it's always something that I've wanted to do. And at the time, it felt like, you know, getting, and I, I still think this today, getting a master's degree felt like the right thing to do. It felt like a good way to sort of, you know, continue my education, but allow that flexibility of if I want to compete still, which of course I ended up doing with Tokyo, it allowed that flexibility to exist still, which was, which was really great. Um, and so I, I went with public policy because, you know, the day my goal is to help people, you know, it's to really make this, make this world a better place um, than we left it. Um, and so I ended up uh, getting that, that, getting the master's degree. I love my time there. I had wonderful professors who were very supportive of my career. I actually missed the first uh, two weeks of classes that was in Rio, which was fun. Um, but uh, yeah, so it really was just a, a marvelous experience to get to be a part of, to, you know, feel like I was continuing to educate myself despite the the challenges I was, despite, um, uh, you know, still being an athlete, you know, I think that's really important to have balance in your life because if you're just mm-hmm. doing one thing all the time, if that one thing goes away, you you have nothing left, you know, and that's a really scary place to be in. And so I finished that degree and then um, I was essentially, Tokyo was right around the corner and I said, well, I, you know, I really don't think I can dive full into work right now or it's not what I want to do. And, you know, my dad was, like I said, my dad's professor at PhD. He said, why don't you explore this as an option? And so I, you know, applied to a couple of schools and, you know, I got into, got into the University of Denver and said, wow, I think I'll go for this. And I've, I've really enjoyed uh, getting to teach or being, getting to teach some. I think that's some my undergraduate degree is actually in teaching. And so teaching, educating people is always something I've loved to do. Uh, and so it was a great chance to kind of get back into that, kind of delve really into this academic, kind of indulge my nerdy side, so to speak. And, <laughs> you know, I've um, I've gotten to travel the world, luckily, as part of my career. And so I think that's why international relations has really drawn to me. Is You know, I, I recognize that, you know, I love living in this country, but you know, there's a whole world out there, you know, and there's so much we can learn from the world around us and things that happen here affect people other places and things going on across the world affect us. And so really understanding uh, more about the way the world works together was something really fascinated me and 
Um, you know, it's really a wonderful program. I'm still kind of just chipping away through it and hopefully I'll finish before Paris rolls around, but, um, yeah, it's, 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 it's a great thing to be a part of. Well, and I know that, you know, your family has experience in justice, you know, in, in the past, um, with, um, I think it was your grandparents that were in place in an internment camp in, in uh, during World War II. Did that have any impact on also this, your, your lens of looking at international, uh, this global community? Yeah, I, I think absolutely. I think that, that informs, you know, both by, I think both my policy degree and the, the degree to look internationally, I think is that really uh, about how do we serve people? How do we help people? How do we make the world right? And how do we, how do we, you know, how do we stand up for injustice when we see it? You know, like you said, my, you know, my, my grandparents, pretty much everyone on my dad's side of the family you know, of that generation was in the internment camps actually. And so, and he grew up at a time when being, part Japanese was really a, you know, a, a considered a bad thing, you know, in this country, there was a lot of anti-Asian uh, stereotypes because we just, you know, we just fought a war against Japan and never mind that my dad was born in America and lived in America his entire life. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the way prejudices work, unfortunately. And so I think that that, those experiences and that knowledge has always informed the way in which I go about the world, which is really trying to be reflective and understanding and, and really standing up when I see things that aren't going quite right. And trying to help. But I think the other aspect of that is living with a disability. You know, I think I've seen, you know, I think disability is something that is still a challenge to be dealt with in society as a whole. I think it's something that is still not as mainstream as a as a civil rights issue as it should be and, and needs to be sometimes. And so I think that's part of that. That also informs my my work and my advocacy, you know, thinking about people with disabilities, not just here in the United States, but across the world, you know, because, you know, the U.S., it's not perfect. There's certainly a lot of work to be done, but it's an even bigger challenge in a lot of countries across the world. And so really understanding uh, the challenges people face and what we can do here to help folks across the world and what we can do um, to help folks at home here is something that's really, you know, that those things have really pushed me forward to, you know, basically it's not enough to just be an athlete and compete and do all these things, but you have to use your platform to try to, you know, make change and educate and inspire people to do, to do more in their lives. And that's something that I'm really hoping I can try to do you know, today, but also going forward. Well, I know you mentioned Paris in 2024, but I can't wait to see what you do in that, in that realm of your life too, um, particularly with the, the master's degree in public policy and a PhD in international relations. I can't, can't wait to see what, what uh, Ch- Chuck Aoki will do on, on that side of, of the, the, the realm. Uh, Chuck, is there anything that we've not talked about? And then I always ask, you know, if folks are interested in just kind of connecting with you or following you, are there social pl- media platforms that you're particularly on that people should, should tune into? Um, uh, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm fairly active on, uh, on Twitter and Instagram. Follow me on there. Twitter is my my all the random thoughts that come into my head. So they're, they're, they're clean. Don't worry. But they are there. They can be eclectic, to say the least. Um, uh, and Instagram is really where I try to you know, document the journey I go on, the things we do. I think it's really I think it's a really good platform for that sort of thing. And so I'm just Chuck Aoki on Instagram and Aoki, the number five, and then Chuck on Twitter. So, yeah, please feel free to follow along and engage. You know, I, lo- I love engaging. I love talking about Paralympic sport. I love educating people. I love, you know, coming and speaking and doing different things. I've actually, you know, connected on several speaking engagements and events through social media platforms. Because people have reached out and said, hey, would you be interested in coming? And I said, yeah, sure. And in the digital age, you know, we can do anything from anywhere. So it's really been kind of fun, actually, 
to do that. So yeah, please always feel free to reach out and, and I'm happy to educate and involve and talk about parasport. I think it's something that, you know, I'm, I can never get sick of talking enough about it. You know, I can, I can do this. I can do this all day because it's something I'm passionate about, something I care about, something I love. It's transformed my life in such a meaningful way. And I, you know, my, my, my goal is just, you know, it's always the classic, leave it better than you found it. You know, I think the Paralympic sport movement has made a massive uh, advancement in the United States since I've been involved in it. And I hope it continues to do grow even more and more. I think the work that, you know, Movie United is doing is so fantastic and helping to do that. I think it's only going to get better and better in this country. And, you know, I, I don't have much else to say other than just I encourage anyone to get involved in, in adapted sport in some capacity. You know, I know there's no shortage of a need for volunteers in different sports if you're able-bodied, you know, sometimes, and sometimes that means playing, that can be any number of things. And if you have a disability, you know, find some way to be active. You know, I think that there are certainly times where it can feel challenging, you can feel isolated, but sport can bring such a great community to you that can really transform your life. You know, being active, being recreational, it'll help you physically, but it also helps you mentally. You know, it really does. Even if, even just being around people like me, with disabilities, you know, it, it does so much for my mental health along with my physical health that I can't encourage it enough, you know, and it, you can do anything. You can sail, you can play rugby, you can ski, you can shoot, you can, uh, you know, do track and field. I hate, I, I can't do track and field. I'm, I'm too bad at it, but um, I, other people are very good at it. Um, but yeah, I would just, you know, that's what I just like to say is I encourage anyone to find that area to get active in your life and, and, you know, it'll, it'll just benefit you so much physically and mentally. So it's, it's been a pleasure to get to, get to be, get to be here and talk with you guys. Wonderful. And I, I could talk to you much longer, but I know we've, we've come to come to the conclusion of our conversation. So maybe there'll be a round two in the future. So, uh, anytime, Sean, you know, you know how to find me. <laughs> Thanks, Chuck. Thank you.